Who is Ron Wolfson? I'm sure most of you do know, but just in case you don't, I'm going to give a quick bio and then we'll start. This is Ron Wilson. He's wearing black this year because it's his new color for the year. Is this the end of the year or new color for next year? I don't know. Uh, last year. Okay, last year's color. Um, he's a visionary leader of American Jury and an inspirational speaker. He travels the world telling his entertaining and motivational stories of family, community, and spiritual discovery. He's the Fingerhead Professor of Education at the American Jewish University, a co-founder of Synagogue 3000, and author of Relational Judaism, Using the Power of Relationships to Transform the Jewish Community, and his newest book, The Best Boy in the United States of America, A Memoir of Blessings and Kisses, uh, both published by Jewish Lights Publishing. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Susie, and eats frozen yogurt just about once every day. Not today, because we have Fleshik. With that, did I, did I mention everything I need to mention? You did it great. Okay, again, Shana Tova, and uh, enjoy your lunch and today's program. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Doesn't he do a fabulous job, really? Can we give him a bit? And thank you all for being part of this experiment. Um, the book just came out last week, and uh, I did a, a part of an audio book already, but I thought, what fun would it be to actually read the book, which I often don't do, I never do, but to see uh, your reaction as if you're listening to it on, on tape or on streaming. So please enjoy, and we'll see how it goes, okay? And then after the first few chapters, we'll stop that, and I'll just tell you some stories from the book, okay? I am the best boy in the United States of America. That's what my grandfather, my Zadie, called me from the time I was a little child in Omaha, Nebraska. I know it's true because it's a true story. All my stories are true. Zadie is Yiddish for grandfather, but it means much more than that. It is a term of endearment that is wrapped in love like a warm, fuzzy blanket on a cold winter's night. Zadie's name was Louis Paperni, but everyone besides his grandchildren called him Louie. Zadie was short of stature, maybe five feet tall, but stocky of build with an expressive face featuring sparkling blue bug eyes and an always ruddy complexion. He was stronger than an ox, his early years as a fruit and vegetable peddler, lugging heavy sacks of potatoes endowed him with huge arms and legs. And yet, he was one of the most gentle of human beings. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. A man who easily cried at the drop of a hat and certainly at the sight of a grandchild. Zadie loved three things. His family, his business, and his adopted country, the United States of America. I never ever heard Zadie say the United States. It was always the United States of America in his thick Russian accent. He embraced the freedom and the opportunity that America afforded him. And woe to anyone who criticized anything about my United States of America. Family lore has it that he left Russia for a girl he had fallen in love with in Minsk, his Bashert, his intended one a young woman named Ida Wolfson. Ida had immigrated to the United States of America a few years earlier. And once Louis Perperny saved enough kopecks, 
He booked passage to the new world. He found Ida in Omaha and married her, and they began to build their family. Zavie's peddler wagon became a roadside stand that eventually gave way to a modern supermarket and liquor store, Lewis Market, but everyone called it Louis Market, in a neighborhood called Benson. The fact that he was able to raise a family, four girls, the baby was my mother, build a successful business and enjoy a level of affluence he never believed possible, all this he credited to the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. As a little boy, I loved going over to Bubby and Zadie's house. We would pull into the driveway of 2619 North 56th Street, right next to a large evergreen tree, which dominated the backyard. And my brothers, Bobby and Dougie and I, would spill out anxious to see if Zadie was back from the store. I knew he was home if his enormous, shiny Packard was in the one-car garage. Bubby was always home. It was her domain. Sometimes she would be out in the yard pulling freshly dried gotkas underwear from the clothesline, placing them carefully into her basket. Sometimes she would be in her tiny kitchen, the entrance to which was just inside the back door of Bubby and Zadie's home, opening directly into Bubby's realm. After a kiss from my grandmother, I grab a handful of Bubby's cookies, mandel bread, studded with walnuts and sparkling with cinnamon sugar and run through the dining room and into the living room where Zadie awaited. Zadie ruled from a big overstuffed red velvet chair in his living room where he sat like a king watching his big screen TV. Once Zadie made some money, he always bought the biggest, newest television set, including the first colored TV in Omaha. Right next to the chair was a side table where he kept three things, a pack of cigarettes, unfiltered camels, he smoked four packs a day, his sterling silver Ronson lighter, and a glass of water for his teeth. <laughs> there was no ashtray. Zadie put the butts out in the arms of his big red chair, the upholstery potmarked with dozens of burn holes. You should have seen the dashboard of his Packard, how he didn't burn down the house or blow up the car as a small miracle. Rounding the corner into the living room, I would run towards Zadie sitting on his throne. His ruddy face would brighten like a red stoplight, but his open arms signaled, go, go, go. Rushing into his arms, turning my face toward his barrel chest, I submitted to his hug, smelling the smoke on his breath, looking up at his big bug-eyed blue peepers that seemed always on the verge of spilling tears of joy. Just then he did it. Zadie would cross his powerful legs behind me like a world wrestling federation brawler, locking me in a tight embrace. He planted a huge, scratchy, sloppy wet kiss on my lips and wrapped his enormous arms around my back. I wriggled to try to escape his grasp, screaming, Zadie, Zadie, let me go, let me go, but it was no use. I was a prisoner of his love. When I finally settled down into that loving hug, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Rami, you're the best boy in the United States of America. I struggled some more, 
wanting and never wanting him to let me out. Rani, you're the best boy in the United States of America. I know, Zadie, I know, let me go, let me go. Zadie wasn't satisfied until he said it a third time. Rani, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And then finally, he loosened his legs and I escaped. And when my younger brother Bobby rounded the corner, running into Zadie's arms, and Zadie put him in the dreaded beloved leg lock, and Zadie would give him a huge, scratchy, sloppy, wet kiss right on his lips and wrap Bobby in his enormous arms and look him straight in the eye and say, Bobby, you're the best boy in the United States of America. It mattered not which one of us he held. And when my brother Dougie jumped into Zadie's lap and Zadie put him in a leg lock and gave him a huge, scratchy, sloppy, wet kiss right on his lips and wrapped Dougie in his enormous arms and looked him straight in the eye and say, Dougie, you're the best boy in the United States of America. It mattered not. And when cousin Lori Lutbeg jumped into Zadie's lap and Zadie put her in a leg lock and gave her a huge, scratchy, sloppy, wet kiss right on the lips and wrapped Lori in his enormous arms and looked her straight in the eye and said, Lori, you're the best girl in the United States of America. It mattered not. Because for Louis Paperni, each one of his nine Enochlach, his nine grandchildren, was the best boy or best girl in the United States of America. We believed him. I believed him. And in a certain way, I've lived the rest of my life trying to be that best boy. <laughs> Chapter two. The best boy in the United States of America, except in religious school. <laughs> Did you go to religious school as a kid? My Christian friends went to Sunday school. My Mormon friends went to religious instruction at 6.30 a.m. weekday mornings before public school. I went to Hebrew school Monday, Wednesday, 4 to 6. Did you have Mr. Friedman? I had the same teacher in Hebrew school for three years in a row, Bet Gimel and Dalit, second, third, and fourth grade. Let's call him Mr. Friedman. He wasn't really a Hebrew school teacher. He really sold appliances at Sears. But he had a good neshama, a good soul. And he knew some Hebrew. And he was willing to come to Bethel Synagogue in Omaha, Nebraska every afternoon to try to teach me and my friends a few Hebrew words. He knew nothing about teaching. And he had no classroom management skills. He spoke in a high-pitched voice with a thick old country accent that we kids determined was definitely Lithuanian. Hebrew school was boring. I was a good student at Dundee School, but the last place I wanted to be at four in the afternoon after a full day of public school was another classroom. I wanted to be home watching cartoons or playing ball or ogling Annette Funicello on the Mickey Mouse Club. But Mondays and Wednesdays, my friends and I would walk from Dundee School, past Chris Rexall Drug, up Dodd Street, past the candy shop that sold my favorite sugar dots on those long, narrow strips of paper, 
and enter Bethel from 48th Street into the social hall where there was a makeshift gym for us kids to blow off some steam. Some gym. The big piece of equipment was a long ladder-like set of parallel bars that served as a basketball hoop. We played for 15, 20 minutes until the bell rang, and then we raced upstairs to room two, where Friedman awaited in his short-sleeved white shirt and paisley tie. Friedman began each lesson the same way. Welcome to room two, emphasizing the word two as if he were spitting on the floor. Truth be told, I was happy to be sitting according to the alphabetical seating chart <laughs> in the back of the room next to Mark Moshe Zalkin, less likely to be showered with Friedman's expectorant. What a room. At Dundee School, the classrooms were lined with colorful bulletin boards and posters. At Bethel Hebrew School, room two had one tan cork bulletin board with exactly one thing tacked on it a Jewish calendar from the Hevra Kedisha, the mortuary. With its four rows of classroom desks with names and doodles carved in the top by bored kids and a hissing radiator huffing and puffing to keep place warm in Nebraska's winter, room two was a dreadful place to spend a long afternoon learning a foreign language. Friedman didn't help matters with his Hebrew teaching skills. His idea of an exciting lesson, Hebrew speed reading drills. You, Wolfson, you sit here in the front of the room. You will try to read faster than Moshe. Moshe, you sit next to Wolfson. Then Friedman would pull out a stopwatch. Okay, boys, it didn't matter that half the class was girls. When I say go, I want you to read as fast as you can. Echot, Stein, Shalosh, go. I read as fast as I could, and so did Moshe. Whoever got to the end of the paragraph first, was the winner. This was exciting at 5.30 in the afternoon. So in Hebrew school, I became a class clown. I'd do anything to get Friedman off topic and furious. Spitballs, notes to friends, sneaking a peek at comic books underneath the desktop, throwing pencils into the acoustical ceiling, talking, always talking. Friedman would try to control the classroom by yelling and threatening, Wolfson, you, get out the harbinger of a wonderful respite at the principal's office, or maybe Rabbi Kripke's study. Wolfson, I called your parents, a threat he actually followed through with only once. Most of the time, he would begrudgingly put up with my antics. Friedman had a name for me. He called me in Yiddish, Wilde Chaya, which means wild animal. So most afternoons at Hebrew school, under his breath, Friedman would mumble, Wolfson, you, Vildachaya, you. <laughs> when he got really upset, Friedman would yell at me loudly a single Hebrew word. Sheket, 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 sheket. You know what it means? I had no idea. <laughs> the little literal translation is quiet. But the way Friedman shouted the word, it means, shut up. Shut up, you ungrateful Wildechaya, you. Sheket, sheket, sheket. That's all I heard all afternoon. Sheket. Not once did I get a sheket, bavakasha, shut up, please. It was the only Hebrew word I learned in those three years. Well, I thought I learned it. 
When I went for my first bar mitzvah lesson, the tutor, Mr. Katz, another sweet man from Europe, pinched my cheek as the old timers did and asked, Sonny, what's your name in Hebrew? I said, Sheket. <laughs> for the longest time, I thought my Hebrew name was Sheket Ben Avraham. If Freeman got really upset, he would curse me out in Yiddish, which, of course, he mangled into English so I would understand it. He got beat red in the face and yelled at the top of his lungs, you Wolfson, go to the back of the room and spit in your own face. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about, so I was nine years old, I'd stand up and I'd try it. Pui, pui, pui. <laughs> I suppose now is the time to reveal that as I write this, I am completing 40 years as a professor of Jewish education. I travel the world teaching Jewish educators, rabbis, lay leaders, and communal professionals how to improvise and improve their classrooms, schools, synagogues, community centers, Hillels, summer camps, and federations. I've written 13 books, many of them guides to bringing Judaism alive in the home in a joyous and meaningful way. I give at least 100 talks a year on Jewish life, making my points by telling my stories. Did I mention that all of them are true? Anyway, my reputation as a Vildechai at Bethel Synagogue might have been the reason it took them 20 years to invite me back to give a lecture. <laughs> I had already published four best-selling books about Jewish life, and my mother, Bernice, ensured that a big crowd showed up. The talk was a blast to give, and of course it was very well received by my hometown friends and family. Guess who was sitting in the front row? <laughs> yep. At the end of the evening, Mr. Friedman stood up with a huge smile on his face, turned to the assembled group, and in that unforgettable, high-pitched, Lithuanian-accented voice proclaimed, Rani Wolfson was the best student I ever had in Hebrew school. I'll do one more. <laughs> Chapter three, Bubby's Candles. The best time at Bubby's and Zadie's was celebrating Shabbat. Bubby would rise at five in the morning on Fridays to begin preparing for her huge weekly Shabbat dinner. My first memory of those days is newspapers on the floor. The first thing Bubby did when she got up on Friday morning was wash her kitchen floor. Now this made no sense whatsoever. She'd be cooking all day long and the floor would get dirty. After she washed the floor, she did something even more curious. She lined it with newspapers. Newspapers covering the entire floor of her kitchen. She always used the Omaha World Herald for this purpose, never the forwards, her <laughs> beloved Yiddish newspaper. I never understood why Bubby and the women of that era began their Shabbat preparations by washing the floor. I thought it was part of the Jewish ritual. Only as a college student did I finally figure it out. Bubby knew that the time to begin Shabbat would likely come upon her quickly. By traditional Jewish law, the candles are lit 18 minutes before sundown. In a rush to finish preparing the meal, she wouldn't have time to wash the floor before Shabbat began. So. The only solution, wash the floor first thing, 
in the morning and cover it with newspapers to catch the drippings. Then, just before lighting her candles, she would simply gather up the newspapers, throw them away, and her nice, clean floor was ready for Shabbos. Brilliant. Bubby was a tiny little woman, maybe four foot nine, but she was a powerhouse that ruled the roost. She loved having the entire mishpucha, the family, over for Friday night dinner. When it came time to welcome in Shabbat, Bubby walked all by herself from the kitchen into the dining room to a break front, a large piece of furniture with cabinets holding all her precious crystal and china. On the front shelf of the head break front was a large silver candelabrum with places for six candles. Why six? Two for the minimum for Shabbat and four, one for each of her daughters. Sylvia, Rose, Ruth, and my mother, Bernice. Bubby would open a top drawer and pull out those six candles and the small black lace scarf called in Yiddish a tichel. And she gently placed it on top of her head, lit the candles, and then did what to me as a young child always seemed very mysterious. Bubby circled the flames three times. Three times. And at the end of the third wave, she covered her eyes, blocking her sight of the candles. Then she went into a kind of trance, mumbling a few Hebrew words, all the while slightly moving her tiny body in place, a kind of spiritual aerobics. She held her hands in front of her eyes for what seemed like hours, but it was in reality only a few moments. She said nothing out loud, but it appeared she was deep in prayer. When she was ready, she lowered her hands from in front of her eyes, and what I would see next has stayed me, with me, ever since. There were always, always, always tears streaming down her cheeks. Why was she crying? Much later I understood. Bubby was talking to God, praying for blessings of good health and success for her family and friends. This was her private spiritual moment of the week. And then Bubby rushed into the adjacent living room looking for the first grandchild she could get her hands on. Often it was me, and I knew what was coming. She would grab me in a warm embrace and plant a big, wet, slobbery, scratchy kiss on my punim. It was scratchy because she had a mole right above her lip with a little hair sticking up. And she would say, good Shabbos, tatala, sweetie, good Shabbos. At that moment, I learned the most important lesson I ever learned or taught concerning Jewish family life. It's about the blessings and the kisses. The rituals without the kisses are empty. I think that's good. Thank you very much. That was very difficult to do, but I think it was great. So I'm at my friend Diane's house. She's a 30-something trial attorney. And she, it's Shabbat dinner, and she goes to light the candles, much like my bubby did. She set up the candles, lit a match, lit the candles. Then she started like this, the three times, do any of you do this three times around? Uh, that's freestyle, anybody go like this? <laughs> that's, well, whatever. Uh, 
Yeah, she went like this, but as she did it, she said this. I'm not exaggerating. Quick, quick, speed! Quick, quick, speed! Quick, quick, speed! Like a chicken. Quick, quick, speed! My first book was a 280-page guide to how to celebrate Shabbat dinner, and never in my whole life had I heard anybody like candles and go, quick, quick, so I'm a good guest when I go to someone's house, right? And it was a lovely dinner. So as we're leaving, I go up to Diane and I say to her, Diane, this was a lovely Shabbat dinner. Thanks for inviting us. I just have one little question. <laughs> when you lit your candles, you said something like, brick, brick, What was that? She looks at me with a straight face and says, I don't know. <laughs> I said, you don't know? Then why are you doing it? And she says, my mother lights candles that way. My grandmother lights candles that way. That's how you light candles. Now I'm curious. So I say to her, slow it down. Maybe I'll figure it out. So she slows it down and she says, Berich Shemay. Oh, so now I hear it. And I say to her, you're probably saying something in either Aramaic, the language of the rabbis of the Talmud, it was their kind of vernacular, their kind of Yiddish of the time, or you're a Galicianer. Baruch Shemay is the Hebrew equivalent is Baruch Shema. Now you all know this because when we're in services, the person leading the services, the cantor or the shaliach tzibor, will sing Baruch Hashem, and we all say. Baruch Hu Uvaruch Shemo. That's what you're supposed to say. Which means literally, blessed is he, meaning God, and blessed is God's name. Shemo is the word for name. But I don't know about you, I go to a lot of different synagogues, and everyone's in a hurry, so no one ever says it that way. The cantor will sing, Baruch Adonai, and the congregation will go, I was in one place where they went, Baruch Uvaruch Shemo. I was in another place where they went, Baruch Shemo. Then I was in one synagogue where everybody went, Shmo! <laughs> now, I don't know who they're talking about. It could be the rabbi, the cantor, or maybe Scott, the president of the synagogue. I don't know. <laughs> so get this. In Diane's lovely tradition, maybe generations ago, you light the Shabbat candles and bring the aura of the Shabbat lights into your spiritual place, and you say this, Baruch Hu Baruch Shmo. Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo. Isn't that lovely? Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo. But over the years, it turned into, Fix me! Fix me! <laughs> On this, we will not build a Jewish future. I'm in a reform synagogue at a bat mitzvah of a friend, and the rabbi brings everybody into his study Friday evening before Kabbalat Shabbat services to get everyone's Hebrew name for tomorrow, the next morning, Shabbat morning. They're going to call people up. So I'm standing there, about 20 of us, and the rabbi starts with my father. He knew my father. May he rest in peace. He said, Alan, what's your name in Hebrew? He said, Avraham ben Mordechai. Rabbi writes it down. He knows me. Ron, what's your name in Hebrew? I said, Sheket ben Avraham. <laughs> uh, then he gets to my cousin Bruce, and he says, Bruce, what's your name in Hebrew? And Bruce says, I can't remember my name in Hebrew. So on the spot, the rabbi gives him a Hebrew name. He says, Bruce, we'll call you Baruch. Oh, that makes sense. This goes around to one of the teenagers. What's your name in Hebrew? Teenager had no idea. What's your name in English? She says, 
Tiffany. <laughs> Rabbi thinks a minute and he says, okay, we'll call you Tirza. Well, that worked. So that goes on and on and on until finally he gets to the mother of the bat mitzvah. True story, all my stories are true. What's your name in Hebrew, he asks the rabbi. The rabbi asks her and she says, I don't know my name in Hebrew, but I know it in Yiddish. Rabbi's excited. Great, we can use that. Tell me, what's your name in Yiddish? She says with a straight face, Brontosaurus. <laughs> I thought the rabbi was gonna completely lose it. <laughs> but he kept his composure and under further investigation, it turned out her name was Bronchosura in Yiddish, but it had turned into Brontosaurus. It reminds me of the old joke about Steven Spielberg. You know, they said uh, he was going to build a, a Jurassic Park in Israel. Do you know about it? Yeah, he was going to call it Dinosaurus and Minotaurus. <laughs> you don't have to know a little Yiddish to know that. Um, I walked down the basement of Marsha Elkan's house when I was 15 years old. And I saw across a crowded room the cutest girl I'd ever seen in my life. I had not seen her before at Lewis and Clark Junior High School. I walked over to her and she was wearing an Indian madras blouse. Do you remember Indian madras, any of you? It was a fabric that bled in the wash, so it was, every piece was unique. I was wearing a Gantt shirt with the little thing in the back and cologne from Canoe. <laughs> and um, I made a beeline to her, this cute girl, and she's uh, on this Madras blouse she had embroidered on her pocket right here. I couldn't help but notice. The initials SK. And I said, SK, hi, I'm Ron. What does SK stand for? And she said, Susie Kukovka. I said, well, that's kind of a funny name, Kukovka. She said, well, it means cuckoo bird in Polish, Kukovka. I said, wow, that's very cute. Cute girl, cute name, I was hooked. And I didn't leave her side the rest of that evening. And we've been married 45 years. Uh, yeah, we had a great wedding night. Do you remember in those days before you uh, lived together for eight years before your wedding? <laughs> I mean, today the wedding couple sweeps the floors, right? We were ready to leave immediately after the dinner was over at Beth Israel Synagogue in Omaha, Nebraska. I couldn't wait to get out of there with Susie. We had booked the honeymoon suite at the Holiday Inn in Omaha, Nebraska. But some astronaut was in town, so we got bumped to the Casbah suite. I can't remember exactly the Casbah suite, but there was some sort of canopy over the bed. We had brand new luggage uh, uh, to match our going away outfits, which were bright pastels. <laughs> the luggage had paisley pastel on it. And I took Susie over the threshold of the room and we got ready for our big wedding night. And uh, the next day we were going to meet the family for a bon voyage for our honeymoon to Disneyland. <laughs> and I picked up the heavily packed brand new suitcase and the handle broke off. And now I don't know what to do because I can't move 
the suitcase, like so heavy. And now it's about 11.30 on our wedding night. And I can't imagine, what should I do? So I did the only thing I could think of. I called my dad. <laughs> and my father answered the phone in horror and said, I said, Dad? And he said, Ronnie? I said, Dad, I'm in trouble. He said, what's the matter? And I said, I need a screwdriver. <laughs> we collapsed in laughter. <laughs> and the next morning, he brought his whole toolbox, and we did quite well on the honeymoon, thank you. We moved to St. Louis, where I started teaching, in a great after-school program that invested kids in camping during the year. And I changed from becoming a rabbi. I thought I'd become a rabbi, but I became a Jewish educator instead. And it was a very exciting time in our lives. And uh, four years after we got married, we fell pregnant. And I say we because I was involved in the pregnancy as much as any potential father could be. We took the Lamaze classes. And we got ready. And we a little superstitious about the nursery, but we bought a few toys. And, a crib, but nobody, nobody ever hinted that something could go wrong, terribly wrong. Our first baby was born on May 6, 1974, and died 13 hours later. She had become stressed during the labor process and uh, had a condition called meconium aspiration and she couldn't breathe. So there was an emergency C-section, and in a rush, a flurry of activity that I can barely remember, Susie was rushed from the operating room into the urology floor, and the baby was rushed next door to Barnes Hospital. My parents and Susie's parents were there to celebrate this impending birth, to become grandparents for the first time. And we were all in a state of shock. Uh, there was a great young intern who worked with me through the night, but he didn't give much hope. A social worker came by and said, perhaps you should see the baby, which I did. It was awful. And early the next morning, this young intern came in to the waiting room and said, well, he didn't say anything. He was in tears, so I knew the outcome. So I rushed over to the other hospital to see Susie, who knew something was wrong. And I collapsed in her arms, crying. And we were both devastated. What we didn't know is that the horror was about to begin. The nurses moved Susie from the urology floor to the uh, another floor so she wouldn't uh, see or hear anything about babies. The OBGYN walked into our room later that day and said, 
gee, I'm really sorry about what happened, but I have to charge you an extra $350 because we did an emergency C-section. And then our rabbi, a dear rabbi of ours, came into the room and I collapsed in his arms and I said, Rabbi, what do we do now? 1974, and he said, Ron, the can will pick up the child and have her buried at B'nai Muna Cemetery. But there is no funeral. There is no shiva. I said, what? There's no funeral? There's no shiva? There's no grieving? No, he said, according to traditional Jewish law, if a baby does not survive 30 days, there's none of that. I said, it's as if it didn't happen? He said, that's the way we do it. To this day, I have no idea where the baby is buried. And we were, today things are different. Today, even for a miscarriage, rabbis will do some sort of ritual, some sort of ceremony. But I'm telling you folks, that moment, we wrestled with God. We wrestled with God. I moved, Susie and I moved here to Los Angeles so I could go to school. And Susie was deep in grief. She found a support group at Stephen S. Wise Synagogue for mothers who had experienced neonatal death, which helped her come through her grief. I did all the wrong things. I said, we're young, we will have other children. I was in denial. But sure enough, a couple of years later, Javi Wolfson came along the most beautiful little girl. And I went abyssal meshuggah. Do you know that term? <laughs> I was working now at the University of Judaism. Some of you remember the old University of Judaism? And on Javi's first Friday night in our home, I was driving down La Cienega Boulevard and I got the biggest idea I've ever had in my life. Our new baby needed a beautiful dress for her first Shabbat. So I walked into the stork shop, and I said to the clerk, please, I need a beautiful white dress for our baby's first Shabbat dinner. Why white? It's the symbol of joy. Remember summer camp and trips to Israel? You wear white. The clerk said, oh, I have just the thing for you. And she marches me to the back of the store, unlocks a cabinet, pulls out the most spectacular white dress I'd ever seen in my life. I said, I'll take it. She wraps it up as a present. I walk into our apartment. I'm holding this box with the red ribbon. Susie says, what's that, Ronnie? I said, it's a present for our new baby, Javi. Susie says, oh, that is the sweetest thing I've ever heard a new father doing. And then she opened the box, looked inside, and starts a gashry, a scream. And she holds out this long, white, knitted gown with little pearls and a little bonnet. It was a christening dress, a baptismal outfit that I, a Jewish educator, had bought for his daughter's first Shabbat dinner. Susie said, Ronnie, do you know what this is? I said, it's a beautiful white dress. She says, no, it's a baptismal dress. I'm not putting our baby in that dress. 
I said, yes, you are. I just bought this dress for $75, 1976. It was on sale. There are no returns. Put the baby in the dress. And she did. And we took a Polaroid. Do you remember Polaroid cameras? A Polaroid photo of this little pitskala, this little tiny baby, swimming in the long white dress with the little bonnet over her head in an infant seat on top of the Shabbat table right next to the challah. That's the picture we have. It's in the book. I couldn't believe it. Susie couldn't believe it. We told all our friends about how I had bought this baptismal outfit for his daughter's first Shabbat. Everybody thought it was hilarious. We didn't get the punchline, though. Dalhavi was 11 months old. We went out to dinner one night in an Italian pizza place. You know those kind with the like kind of dark and it had little twinkly lights and red Naugahyde booths. And we had been spending a whole, almost a whole year celebrating Shabbat and holidays with Javi, which was wonderful. And we sat down in this red Naugahyde booth and there's a red and white check tablecloth and in the center of that table was one single red patio candle. You know the kind you use for a barbecue? Do you know what Javi Wolfson, 11 months old, did when she saw that candle? She went like this. <laughs> she started to bless the candle in the pizza place. I turned to Su God bless you. I turned to Susie. I turned to Susie. Susie turned to me. We said the same thing at the same time. She's a genius. <laughs> and then we realized what had happened. What had happened? What? Come on now. What would most one-year-olds do with a candle? Blow it out. Blow it out, or they're going to try to touch it, or if they're a little older, they're going to want to sing happy birthday, right? <laughs> Not Javi Wolfson at 11 months old. Javi had learned a little lesson about Jewish life. Candles are for blessing. And where did she learn it? She didn't learn it in day school. She didn't learn it at summer camp. She didn't learn it on a trip to Israel. She learned it at home. She learned it in our living room. She learned it the same way my mother learned it from her mother. And her mother learned it from her mother. And I learned it from my bubby. Candles are for blessing. And that's when I learned the second most important lesson of my career, which is that the family is the most important place for Jewish education and Jewish identity building to happen. It's the family. So we were eager to get my daughter married. <laughs> Little Javi turned into a beautiful 20-something. And uh, she finished University of Michigan, came back to Los Angeles to go to school. And a girlfriend said, you got to get on J-Date. You know about J-Date? J-Date is this internet dating service. Oh, she didn't want to do it at first, but then she got it. She was on it, and she was a kid in a candy store going to six J-Dates a night at Starbucks. <laughs> Coming home to report to us, bouncing off the walls from the caffeine. One night she comes home, I found him. He's perfect on paper. I said, Javi, what means perfect on paper? She says, he's 32, he's tall, he's handsome. He has his J-Date profile, his arm around his bubby. He goes to the synagogue. And he's a dentist. This was exciting, a dentist. I said, that's great. Not only was he excited, she excited about him, 
He took one look at our daughter and said, forget coffee, we're going to dinner. In the J-Date world, this is known as an instant upgrade. <laughs> they go out to dinner, it's all great, he pays for it, everything is going great, they start dating, it's three months, it's six months, it's a year, it's a year and a half, these kids take their time, don't they? Mittendrinnen, do you know any Yiddish? In the middle of all this, my university, American Jewish University, it's called now, changes its dental plan. I tell the dentist at Friday night dinner one night, he says, come to me, I'm all over that. I go to him, he's very good. I come home to Susie, I say to her, honey, you gotta go. Susie looks at me with a state of shock on her face. Ronnie, I'm not going to the dentist. I don't want his hands in my, it's not happening. I said, honey, listen, he could be our son-in-law. You must go. I'll never forget what Susie said when she got into the car for her first appointment with the dentist. Good thing he's not a gynecologist. <laughs> That's one of the funniest things I ever heard. Then he, she comes home with a better story. I said, how did it go? She says, oh, it was great. He, you know, it was fine. But you know when you go to a doctor or a dentist the first time, they give you a clipboard with a demographic form to fill out? I said, yeah. She said, well, his, the first line said name. So Susie says, I wrote in Susan Wolfson. But the second line on the form read, name I prefer to be called. She wrote in mom. <laughs> I think that is the funniest thing I ever heard in my life. He never noticed it. Because like most federations and synagogues and Jewish organizations, nobody read the form. He didn't read the form. Next thing we know, we get a call from Maui, mom, dad, mazel tov, we're engaged. No asking for our blessing. We're kind of old school about that. We're engaged. They come back from Maui. She shows us Javi the ring. It was a round ring, not a marquee they've been shopping for, wrong ring. He got a better deal on the ring. I knew that was a sign too. And it went downhill from there. And Avi did the bravest thing I think a young woman can do. Six weeks before the wedding, she called it off and saved her life. Ah, two years later, she met a lovely guy named Dave, works for a small internet company called Google. Have you heard of it? And they've given us our first grandchild. Her name is Ellie Brooklyn. I have a grandchild named Brooklyn. Ask me why. Why? Yeah, well, my father, may he rest in peace, was from Brooklyn. My son-in-law's mother was from Brooklyn. They wanted a bead to honor my mother's memory, Bernice. And Brooklyn's a hot place right now in New York. So they named her Ellie Brooklyn. I called my colleague Larry Hoffman at Hebrew College in New York to tell him the good news. And he says to me, uh, after I tell him, Larry, give me a mazel tov. I have a granddaughter named Ellie Brooklyn. Larry says, Ron, you're going to have four more grandchildren. Manhattan, Staten. <laughs> you can call her Malka if you have another girl for Queens. And if you have a boy, you can call him The Bronx. <laughs> Four years ago, my mom died. This was a key moment in my life. 
I'm still reeling from it. It was very sudden, very sudden. We were at a wedding in Indianapolis, and my brother Doug called from Omaha. He said, you better come quick. My mother was an amazing person. She uh, was the only one of the four daughters to graduate college. My Zadie treated her like the boy of the family, so she learned business. She wanted to buy a Mr. Donut franchise in 1963 with my bar mitzvah money, but they refused to sell it to her because she was a woman. So she said, mm -mm, you, I'm gonna create my own chain of donut shops, and she did, called Dippy Donuts. She had a window into the baker's kitchen in the shape of a cake donut, and around it she put the following phrase, as you ramble on through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. <laughs> Twelve stores she built, and then a deli, and then a bar with karaoke, and then a women's plus-size consignment store called Babes, because my dad called her Babe, term of endearment. She created something to support blind children in Nebraska called the Nebraska Foundation for Visually Impaired Children that she chaired from the minute it was formed to the day she died, 50 years. It's an extraordinary woman, extraordinary woman. Three days after the funeral, my brothers and I, my sister-in-law are looking through her things because she kept all the important documents in the family. And in one of her little blue notebooks, we found a single envelope, white envelope, with the word important on it. And we opened it up. I thought, what could be in here important? Maybe she had a secret bank account. Maybe she wanted to tell us who should get what. What was in this little envelope? What was in the envelope was a letter from beyond the grave. And with your permission, I'd like to read it to you. Four little pieces of stationery, Bernice Wolfson. To my dear sons, Ronnie, Bobby, and Dougie. She never dreamed that she would die first, three years before my dad. First of all, I love you. And I'm proud of all three of you. As I write this, my heart fills with pride for your roles as devoted husbands, and particularly your roles as wonderful fathers. This, of course, is the greatest gift a child can give a parent. Someday when you read this, you will also be reminded that as a parent, another great gift you've given me is the comfort of knowing you care for each other, and that you will be there for each other if you need to be. My simple request is that you talk to each other often after your mother is no longer here to keep you posted. Please keep in touch with Doug. He has a very special challenge in his life and needs the support of people who love and understand him. You have filled my life with pleasure, and the most I can wish for you is that your children do the same for you. I love you, Ron, Bob, and Doug, and thank you for giving my life so much meaning. And it's signed, your mother. Is that something? 
the greatest gift. The greatest gift. She didn't live to see the birth of my second grandchild. His name is Gabriel Elijah, not the Bronx. <laughs> I was honored as the grandfather to be the sandak at his brit milah, his bris. I got to hold the baby during the bris. The moil did his thing in two seconds. But my daughter, Javi, got from my wife, Susie, the creative gene, and she created a 45-minute circumcision ceremony. And I'm sitting on Elijah's chair with this baby in my arms. The baby did great, sucking on a little piece of gauze with the Manischewitz wine. But 45 minutes, there were readings and explanations of the names and songs. It was unbelievably beautiful, but 45 minutes? I'm holding the baby. Finally, it's over, and everybody starts to sing. Sim, sing with me. Simon Tov and Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov and Simon Tov, Simon Tov and Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov and Simon Tov. I don't know what came over me. I'm still sitting on the chair. I'm holding the baby in my arms with my talus, my talit around my shoulders. I stood up with the baby. I held the baby high over my head, and I yelled, Hakuna Matata! <laughs> Did you see the Lion King? <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you know what, my friends? I was born just after the founding of the State of Israel, the heroic founding of the State of Israel, and in the shadow of the Holocaust. More than once, I heard someone say to me in Yiddish, Schwer zu sein ein Yid. It's hard to be a Jew. It was for my Bubby and Zadie in Russia, and it was for my in-laws who survived the Holocaust in Europe but not here, not in the United States of America. In this blessed country, we've sought to craft an American Judaism with joy and meaning, purpose, meaning, blessing, and mainly joy. My Zadie was not simply calling me the best boy in the United States of America, he was calling me to be the best I could be. That's what he really wanted. Be the best you can be. And isn't that the goal of a life well lived? So when I go to Omaha, I visit Zadie Louis' grave. And on my last visit, I said to him, Zadie, guess what? I'm a Zadie now too. Now I get it. Now I understand the nachas of being a grandparent. Because when I put Ellie Brooklyn in a leg lock, <laughs> and I look her straight in the eye, and I give her a big, wet, sloppy, scratchy kiss. And I say to her, Ellie, you're the best girl in the United States of America. And when I put Gabe in my leg lock, and I say to him after a big, wet, scratchy, sloppy kiss, Gabe, you're the best boy in the United States of America. I think of you, Zadie. From the bubbies and zadies, to mamas and papas, the daughters and sons, to the granddaughters and grandsons, the blessings and kisses continue. Thank you all.